This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings from iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Joining me from California is Saul Levine, MD. Dr. Levine, welcome to the program, sir. Thanks for having me, Jay. My pleasure. I uh, understand uh, from reading some of your history, you have a diverse background, uh, raised in Canada to some degree, at least educated there, and now living in California. You also have written five other books for the general public. This is a unique read. You have apparently an interest in the movie industry. Your book takes on some of the characterizations of uh, Strangers on a Train, Alfred Hitchcock's classic. Dr. Levine, share with my listeners the inspiration behind what you've done, the creative process that went into writing this book. Well, let's start with the format. The format is, uh, as you said, Strangers on a Train, and I, what I've done is taken, um, sitting on, a, on an Amtrak car, that's a dirty word nowadays, uh, ten people who don't know each other, ten strangers, from all walks of life, different races, different backgrounds, and you sitting in the car with them, observing them, are making some kind of thoughts to yourself about, wonder what they're all about. He looks disheveled, she looks beautiful, or sad, or whatever. And then I proceed to tell each of their ten stories. These are true stories, but they're kind of uh, aggregates of a number of people, so nobody will be recognized. These are not psychiatric patients. These are thee and me. These are about everybody. And the point of the book and the point of uh, a lot of what I say with you asked about movies is that everybody leads a very interesting life. Even if you scratch the surface of everybody's life, I've learned over the years of doing research and, and working with people that they have highs and lows and loves and losses and successes and setbacks. This is life. When I was a an adolescent, I thought we had a straight line trajectory to success, bigger, better, more healthy. Well, you know, uh, life has its own game plan for you. There's a German expression, man traf Gott lacht, means man plans and God laughs. Mm-hmm. So all lives are convoluted. There's not a person I've met, and I've met many, who does not have this kind of life filled with drama, a rich tapestry of colors, of textures, of, of, of sadnesses and of elation. And it's really important that people recognize that. This is, and, and incorporate that and grow from the successes and the failures. Embrace both because you're going to learn from both. The second, you asked about the origin of the book. I've always sure. been writing about people in different kind of situations. It's my interest, it's my profession actually as a psychiatrist and teacher. But I'm uh, I'm interested in it started with my own father to tell you the truth he was brought uh, brought up in pre uh, World War II Eastern Europe I uh, was a Jewish man uh, there were anti-Semitic pogroms there were beatings there was violence there was abject poverty and he came to North America without a penny without speaking English without anything uh, escaping the Nazis who destroyed most of his family and the uh, home country which was also anti-Semitic. Yes. 
And he became a self-taught, cultured, soft-spoken, tolerant, loving man. I, that's what I was brought up with, this guy who mm. was very strong, worked ma- manual, I'd say menial labor jobs until he could start a business of his own, was never very successful financially, but was successful in that he imbued everybody he came in contact with with a sense of warmth and being cared for and respect and a sense of interest in them. And that's our emotional footprint, which is why I've written the book. It's He was able to, in spite of everything that happened to him, and actually in his adult life, as, as during my, my own life with him growing up, wasn't a piece of cake. He had no money. Um, he uh, went bankrupt once in his later life. Uh, he, he had a very sick son uh, next to me who was a was autistic, retarded child. Mm. He had uh, setbacks in many ways. He had difficulties at times with my mom. But the fact is, he never lost his loving kindness. When I moved out to California, finally, he came out and spent the uh, winters here with me. Uh, all my friends, they tolerated me, but they just fell in love with this guy because... He uh, was a, a this this uh, his emotional footprint was so wonderful. Well, so, so and he lived to, lived to be ninety one years old. Also, is that correct? He he did live to be ninety one, and he still lives uh, larger than life, and not only my life, but all the life he's had. And actually, when I talk about emotional footprint, which is the way we affect ourselves, each other, our communities, our world, uh, it's also it is also not only that we're here leaving that footprint. But it's after we're gone, because it's not the toys and the material things you accumulate. It's what you've imbued people with. How do they remember you? What was the the mood that you, you, uh, the ripple effects of your mood that you permeated the place with? And you've underscored that with the four four Bs, correct? Share with my listeners what the four Bs are that you uh, focus on. The four Bs are being, a sense of yourself, a belonging, a sense of belonging to uh, a group of people. could be a family, a community, a club, or whatever, um, uh, belief, believing in a set of values, not necessarily in a God if you're not, if you're an agnostic or atheist even, but believing in having some kind of spiritual belief or some kind of awe about the universe or some kind of wonder, but also a set of values as, uh, to, to live by. You're a principled man or woman, and you live by that. So, so it gives you, it's more than just materialism and get through the day. Right. And, and our families and our friends, of course, but also what is going on in my mind, uh, philosophically, spiritually, whether you're religious or not. And the last B is benevolence. What have I done for other people? Hmm. Uh, that's built into some religions, but I'm talking about humanism. I'm talking about caring for, uh, for others, nurturing others, extremely important. And it, all this started when I started working with young people who were, were actually in cults and then gangs. And they, no matter what they, trouble they may have gotten into, I won't go into the whole, uh, all the research, but these four things were very important. And then in later life, I was studying uh, my father's contemporaries in Florida uh, who were all in their octogenarians by then. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing. It wasn't that I was a success, successful businessman or a beautiful person or had many lovers. Uh, what kind of a person was I? Can I look in the mirror and see this person, have respect for that person? And it was the four Bs. Am I feeling grounded in myself? Do I feel... Uh, comfortable in my own skin, uh, do I take my mask off, do I feel that I belong and I'm respected and loved, an integral part of a group of other people? Do I feel that I have principles in my life, values I uphold, 
uh, on a daily basis? And, and lastly, have I been good to people, local people, people in my family, but also in the streets, in, in the stores, elsewhere? I, I, I have a thesis that I, I mentioned, uh, and that is uh, that there's a, too much incivility in contemporary life. You know, the airwaves and the uh, media and the um, Internet are full of trolls and nastiness and demeanment and anger, and this has a ripple effect. All this, our footprints, positive and negative, affect the way people feel after they leave us or leave our immediacy. I've seen people, and I'm sure you have too, Jay, in the stores and restaurants and everything, being rude, rude to waiters, rude to, uh, to the fellow uh, clients, Can't rude to, to uh, everybody, mm-hmm. and feel mm-hmm. that they have this right. And they, it's, but it's almost like listening to, I won't mention any names, but uh, <laughs> special pundits on the radio right. or elsewhere who have this feeling that they have total license in saying and uh, anything they want, negative about somebody else, demeaning, criticizing, and it, it's it's uh, it's so that these are held up as examples to young children. This is the way my father is. This is the way this famous person is. This is the way our politicians are. We can be rude. We can be uh, hypocritical. We can be nasty. We can be corrupt. This is a way of life. So the the emotional footprint is that these people that I talk about on the train is not their saints and not that they're sinners. They have had dramatic lives and interesting lives from all walks of life. Uh, but at the end of the day, when they're dying, these are their life stories. And when, they, when they're looking back, they look at the four Bs. They look at, uh, have they been resilient? Have they come back? And they look especially at what kind of a person have I been to my friends, my family, my community. The people that you highlight in your book, the way you have approached this, just for my listeners' sake, is almost as though it's a fictional novel, the conversational style that you've used. And then you bring out in encapsulated form the the basic focus of what that individual may have gone through in life that brought them to this point. Would that be a a correct way to describe what you have penned? Right. And uh, if you've looked at the people, they're all so different in both genders and ethnic background and races and, and uh, how they're living. But, and none of them, none of them has had an easy time in sense, well, nobody does. It totally, life can be very challenging. And some, sometimes they've done things they uh, should have been, quote, ashamed of. Or a couple of them went to jail for a while. A couple of them had to be hospitalized for a while in rehab centers. But in, if you look at them in the whole breadth and length of their and depth of their lives, from zero to uh, the end of their life, you, there's a summation you make at the end. And I helped make it. Uh, I knew these people. I knew some of these. I knew all of these people, but they're conglomerates, as I said. And um, they were all good people, even though, in the course of their life, they've done some harsh things. They tried to compensate for it. They tried to overcome. They tried for redemption. And uh, I think that's what life's all about, to try to learn from our mistakes and correct ourselves. Not everybody can, but the vast majority do. Is that why so, you call them extraordinary? Well, I want to make sure that when I say ordinary, people don't say, oh, yeah, mediocre. I'm mm. more interested, they will say, in the celebrities of the world. And the purpose of this book is you don't have to follow the lead, the lead or the lives of the Kardashians or about uh, the other kinds of shows that are on TV, the reality TV shows, and I can name a whole bunch of them, because you have that in your own life. You have the, the richness of texture and color of your own life, 
and and uh, this is to get people to appreciate their own lives. And I do say extraordinary because it's we are all extraordinary. And actually, I was going to call this book from a piece of music called Fanfare for the Common Man. Yes. I was told, don't use the word common man, because nobody wants to be seen as common. Well, the fact is that using that, that analogy, I don't mean by a common man just a mediocre. I mean all men are beyond, and women are beyond common. They are extraordinary. extraordinary. I didn't know the right word to use, but this does it. I wanted to make extra with a hyphen ordinary. That, so that we are, this book is not about celebrities. It is not about people who have made it big. It's about you and me. And uh, I hope I do, I've done it justice in this book. I'm, I'm very proud of it. I love the way it's, uh, it's laid out. I think it uh, makes it very engaging. It's not a technical book. It's one that is uh, very conversational and touches the emotions because of the way you've described it. You've described ten extraordinary people in your book. Of those ten, is there one story that to you was the most poignant that you've shared? You know, I'll tell you, Jay, it's a terrific question. I, I was thinking about that. I don't have a favorite. Uh, I, I think I start off the book with a, a woman who uh, was uh, not very attractive. I hate to use that. It sounds so sexist. But she was demeaned by others around her. She was quite heavy, obese. Her family was uh, in, in a difficult family. There were just two parents one who thought she should be a movie star, and, a and a, her father was somebody who worked as a ship steward. And the mother actually abandoned this child when she was about uh, 10 or 11 years of age. And father then gave her up to his own, to his mother's, sorry, to his mother-in-law. The, the, the mother disappeared completely. Mm. And uh, this girl, this young girl, and her grandma, grandmother never really wanted her, but they developed a kind of caring for each other. They were both kind of homely and kind of obese. And they developed this kind of uh, partnership. Uh, and this girl went back to school, and she did well in school, and was still treated badly because she was heavy. Um, finished high school, went to college, uh, was a good student, um, became interested in, in religion. That started, her parents were forcing her to go to church, but they had no interest in it themselves. But she went back to Catholicism. And that stayed with her. And actually, she was she had no boyfriends ever. Hmm. Uh, she never thought she'd have any kind of love relationship, romance. And all that came to her in the next few years. She actually ended up, I don't want to give it all away in a sense, but she ended up an amazing person. She ended up uh, for uh, working with the Roman Catholic Church in a major diocese, uh, would help on Sundays, but became actually a very strong public activist for the rights of women in the Catholic Church before this particular pope. She's still alive. She's around 70 right now and is very active with the, um, the uh, Vatican because suddenly they've caught up to her because she has uh, led the way in a, and went for, for a lot of uh, Canadian and American nuns to ask for more power, more recognition uh, in the church for women. And one last thing, she actually met a man and had a passionate affair for over 15 years, all the while belonging to the church. And this guy was, was uh, a very well-known man, but uh, was married to another woman in another city. But they kept it up for 15 years until she said she washed her hands of him. So it's just a fascinating story. Nothing in that story is untrue. It's, well, there's, there's uh, t and there's 10 stories just like that, maybe with different themes and focuses. But uh, the uh, title of the book, again, is Our Emotional Footprint. 
ordinary people and their extraordinary lives. Our guest, Dr. Saul Levine, M.D., has joined me from California. Saul, where can my listeners get copies of this? Because, I, again, it's, it's not a technical book, but it does have some very important topic material that you've covered in a very conversational manner. So I think it's a, a fine book. How do we get a hold of it? Uh, any, uh, you can get it through e-books on Amazon or Barnes & Noble on a number of, of uh, e-sites. And uh, you can order it through bookstores. And it has a hard copy. It's, it's a soft-cover book. But the hard copies are not very expensive, eighteen ninety-five, and uh, I hope it's it's doing very well without the marketing having begun just by my telling people about it, and they're reading it and liking it and ordering it. So I, I, it's a good read, but it's also important for the reader that they resonate with their own lives when reading the stories of these ten people. And it's a unique approach. Thank you, sir, for joining me today and sharing your story. Thank you very much, Abe, for calling. Look forward to visiting with you again. I know there will be more books in the future, having your background and uh, your history. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled The Sky Detective, a memoir. And our author who joins me from California is Azadeh Tabazedeth. Welcome to the program, Dr. Tabazedeth. Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me. Did I get close on your name? I apologize in advance for my listeners. This is a, uh, a name that is not familiar to me, so I am uh, having a little more challenge. Did I get close? Yes, you did. Thank you. Well, it's a joy to talk with you. You are a doctor, have a doctorate, and your 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 book, uh, 246 pages, is a memoir. Share with my listeners, first of all, how you ended up in California, because I believe that's not your native uh, birthplace, and how you uh, came to write this book. Well, I'm, I was born in Iran, Tehran, and um, I went through the revolution in 1979. I was a teenager at the time, and after the uh, Islamic government um, was established, there a lot of, um, um, well, it was like um, women's rights weren't, um, uh, they violated uh, for many, you know, Yes, Sorry. that's all right. It was a difficult time, yes. correct? Still yes, is. It was a difficult time, so uh, I escaped the country uh, after the war with Iran and Iraq began. They closed down the universities, so I escaped with my brother and cousin, 
and lived in Spain for six months before uh, getting a visa to come to the United States. And what year was that for our listeners? Uh, 1982. Just just at the beginning of uh, 1982, ab- about the time that uh, the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, was was elected. Is that about the about the right time frame? No, it is the right time frame. Yes. yes. And and share with us why you were uh, wanting to get out of Iran. You mentioned the the women's rights were certainly a part of that that reason. Uh, what else was there going on at the time? Well, I mean, they have uh, the veiling became mandatory, and they uh, shut down. The universities were shut down, but also, um, you know, you couldn't do a lot of things in Iran if you were a woman, like study the subjects that you were interested in. And I just felt that I couldn't live for the rest of my life, you know, covering my whole body and just not pursuing what I really wanted to do, which was to study chemistry. So I was really adamant about getting out of the country. But we were fortunate because my parents were wealthy and could afford to pay for us to escape Iran. A lot of um, people actually had to stay behind and just, you know, adapt to this situation. Did your parents, did the rest of your family, did they remain in Iran? No, they left after six months. Um, So when we got our visas to come to the United States, they took the same uh, escape route. And they resided in Spain before they got their visas to come to the United States. You've used the term escape. Uh, I'm, yes. I'm assuming and presuming because of the nature of Iran and the leadership there that leaving Iran was not something that they uh, looked on favorably. Um, no, at the time, there was the war just started with Iraq, so all the borders were shut down, and so we couldn't actually leave the country at the time. So we had to go through either the borders of Pakistan or borders of Tur- Turkey or Afghanistan to, you know, to get out of the country. And were you able to uh, leave by those uh, ports or those, those uh, border crossings uh, favorably? I mean, was it simple to get across the border or were there obstacles that were difficult to overcome? Well, it was difficult because it was illegal to do that. So we took a big risk by some people, you know, when they were skating, they were arrested by the government. But we were lucky that we actually made it through to Pakistan, to Karachi, without being um, being arrested. So that was, that was like a, uh, that was a risk, but we were willing to take the risk because my brother was of an age that he needed to sign up to go to the war. Mm. So he was drafted, and my family just wanted to, you know, to avoid that. You mentioned that you were in education in Iran and had a desire to study the sciences. What uh, what area of uh, of uh, or degree of study had you achieved inside the the country itself? Well, I was like just about to finish my diploma, high school diploma, but we had to escape um, sometime in early June, so I never took my finals to finish uh, my diploma. But I was able to take a lot of uh, math, physics, and um, chemistry, biology courses in the high school system in Iran. The so title. I, was, I yeah, had a good background. You had a good background. The title of your book, "The Sky Detective." What is the significance yes. of that particular title? Yes, because I uh, came here and I studied uh, chemistry. I obtained a PhD in chemistry from UCLA. But then I went for my PhD research. I did research in atmospheric chemistry, so I study basically the uh, processes that goes on in the atmosphere, the skies, like formation of clouds, pollution, and climate change, and subjects of that nature. So that's 
the title of the book, The Sky Detective, has to relate to the science that I did. And also mm. Time Magazine did an article about my research, and that's the title of the article that they wrote about me, my discoveries, and... Um, and my personal life. So I just kind of borrowed that title because I liked it. Beautiful. And when was this article released? Uh, I believe the article was released in 2004 or 2004, 2005, in December probably 2004. Amazing. Did your whole family immigrate to the United States or just you and perhaps a brother or two? Uh, my brother and I became, my whole family is here now. My parents live in Los Angeles, and my sister lives in Seattle. So, And my brother is lives in Los Angeles as well. Wonderful. Of the stories that you have recounted in your book, now the, the time frame basically is Tehran, 1972 to 82. You have some scenes in Pakistan, Spain, and the United States. Which of those was the most difficult or scary of the events that you had to, uh, had to uh, progress through? Well, probably the uh, the escape because um, it was kind of um, I was very young and I didn't know what was going to happen to us, and it was just uh, me, my brother, and my cousin. Like, and we were like escaping with a bunch of the smugglers. Uh, they were Pakistani smugglers who used to traffic uh, drugs, but now they were trafficking people. So I was, wow. just, uh, I was. I was worried, you know, I, but I'm sure my parents were more worried about sending us off like that, but it was that's probably the scariest part of the of the of the journey, I would say. But it was part of the what you feel at least in retrospect the necessity of getting to the United States. Did you have some preconceptions of the United States that uh, maybe were false that you were happy to find were not true? Um, no, I, I, we were like, at the times of the Shah, it, Iran was very much westernized, so we were very familiar with American movies and American literature and um, and the whole, you know, the science and everything. So I was very comfortable. I really wanted to come here uh, to pursue my studies because I knew that I have a chance to, to do what I want to do here. So, you know, I always had good feelings about the United States. I mean, just that's just, the government is just a few selected people that have a propaganda. Most people are actually very much in favor of the U.S. and the policies, and particularly human rights. So I had no, you know, I had no hard feelings towards the United States. Beautiful. Now, Dr. Zada, did you have uh, any particular audience in mind in writing this book? What was the goal in, in getting it into print? Why did you want to tell your story? Well, there are a couple of reasons. It's just I went here and I studied hardcore sciences, so and that's not a field that a lot of women are in. So I wanted to write a story and inspire young women to, uh, young girls to study science and do what you know what comes naturally to them. So I wrote it for for women, you know, to inspire them. And also I wrote it because I left a lot of people behind and one person in particular I was very close to so I wanted to pay tribute to them and just just like to write something about them that they existed and their lives were um, they're interrupted by the revolution and I lost track of them so I wanted just to pay tribute to the, to the people that I left behind. Do you have extended family still in Iran that you are able to communicate with? I have like I have Two aunts that are three aunts that are still living in Iran, and I have very minimum communications with them. 
uh, because of the uh, political restrictions? Seen, yeah, political situation, and I haven't seen them for 30 years. Oh, so wow. It's like, yeah, so that makes it hard to have like kind of an ongoing relationship. What is it that you think readers will take away from your work? What did you have a desire to, to communicate with them? That, you know, if you work hard and you believe in yourself, that you are able to achieve what's, uh, what you want in life, but you have to work hard and you have to uh, basically believe in yourself. So that's what I like, you know, for the readers to take away. Sure. And, and doctor, how long did it take to complete this? Did you sit down uh, in, in six months, tell your story? How long did it take to complete? Probably about 10 years, because for seven years I was a professor at Stanford, so I had a really busy schedule. So I only really focused on it for the last three years to get everything in order and, you know, to do some research on the history. So uh, maybe like uh, for three years, but I've been working on different stories for about 10 years. And was there any challenge in, in getting the Sky Detective, a memoir, completed? Um, it was just when I was working, it was very difficult because I also have three children. So I, I was a professor and it just took, you know, I didn't have that much time to write. But then I took a few years off. That's when I got freed up and could, could write it down and just edit it because you have to edit it many, many times. Sure. Yeah. Is there is there another book in your future? Do you do you feel like you have more to tell, not only about your story, but perhaps in the field of science? I probably will, because this story is mainly covers the time when I was a child and adolescent, and like my escape from Iran. So I like to write about you know my scientific discoveries and you know, how, how I came up with different hypotheses and how, how science works to get something completed. So I probably would like to write a book about, more about science, like, but, but in a way that it's approachable by, you know, by non-scientists. Good. I might be able to understand something that you, uh, that you communicate in that book. I look forward to hearing from you about that as well. Uh, doctor, you have a degree in sciences, and uh, what else have you done? Who else have you been associated with that might be of interest to my readers? Well, I worked for many years for NASA. Um, I was the earth scientist at NASA. I studied the ozone layer, the depletion of the ozone layer, and was instrumental in banning the use of uh, chlorofluorocarbons that deplete the ozone layer. And after I worked for NASA, I also uh, was a professor at Stanford, professor of geophysics for seven years. And after that, I took a few years off uh, academia to write my memoir. You have had a fascinating history and certainly have been what I would call an achiever. So thank you again for coming to this country and adding to our culture. Thank you very much. Thank you for sharing your story on this, your first published book, The Sky Detective, a memoir. And our author has been Ozada Tabazeda. I think I got it pretty close, did I? Yes, you did. And you do what, would you like for me to uh, give more information about our I'd, website? Yes, yes. Let's find out where we can get copies of it and also your website, please. Yes, the copies can be bought on Amazon. And my author website is azadetabozade.com, which is a Z A D E H T A B A Z A D E H dot com. 
Thank you for spelling that out. That was uh, very helpful, and I'm sure my listeners will, will want to get a copy of this, those who are interested in history and also the uh, culture of Tehran and uh, Iran. And your story, I think, would be uh, fascinated by this read. Thank you again for sharing time with me today. Again, the story title is The Sky Detective, a memoir, and you can do a search under that name, and I'm sure find it if you have difficulty with the author's name. So that's a great way to find it. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Ordinary Evil. The subtitle, in May 1970, an altar boy was murdered in Massachusetts. The crime will never be solved. A novel by Gene Ferraro, who joins me from near Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Gene. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Pleasure visiting with you. You have an extensive background as a producer and have uh, worked in media for a number of years. This is your first published novel. Share a little of the background into how this novel got to be written and how long it took. Well, it took me a long time. I was raised Catholic. Uh, I grew up Catholic, and I grew up Catholic in Massachusetts uh, at a time when the culture kind of permeated everything. A lot of elected officials were Catholic. A lot of the police were Catholic. uh, And I grew up in the 50s when it just was a different time, very different than today, when you didn't have cell phones, you didn't have uh, a lot of media. Uh, It was a much quieter time. And so uh, I got to thinking the more I learned about the, as the sexual abuse crisis hit the Catholic Church, uh, I became very interested in the subject because uh, having been raised the way I was. So I thought that it was very interesting that it took so long for everything to get revealed, and it seemed to me that the origins had to go much deeper than uh, what came out at the time in the late 90s and just after the uh, millennium. So uh, I did a lot of research. Uh, I looked into a lot of different uh, cases, events, books, newspapers, and uh, I decided to uh, write a book that would give people an idea of how these things could have happened and, and the kind of culture at the time. And that's how the book came about. Is everything in your book fictional in, in nature, or was it based on some, some actual events that had taken place in Massachusetts? 
many of the things that are in the book are based on actual events. They've been, uh, I've obviously changed them in many ways. Uh, some of them are combinations of things. Uh, some characters have, uh, have antecedents in real characters. Uh, but a lot of the stuff that I took to come up with the plot came out of newspapers and uh, the research of people who were doing uh, reporting on the crisis when they were looking into its origin. And, and so uh, there are a number of characters in the book. There's a few characters that are actually real. Uh, and, uh, for instance, the, uh, you know, the book has a crucifixion scene very early in the book. Yes. That goes on. That goes on. It goes on every year. And uh, uh, so uh, that wasn't made up. That came out of an uh, article in the uh, Boston Globe a few years ago. So, I mean... You know, a lot of it is based in some kind of actual event. In actual events. You have uh, penned nearly 356 pages of, of uh, content. Would you describe this as character-driven uh, primarily, or is this a mystery thriller? How would you uh, best describe it? Well, I think, you know, I think that what's interesting is I like to think that the, the idea of the tagline in, in 1970, Alter Boy was murdered in Massachusetts, the crime will never be solved, that it's... Uh, that's kind of the key, you know, well, why won't it be solved? I right. mean, what kind of a crime happened? Uh, I'd say it's also character-driven because uh, all the characters, most of the characters share one thing in common. They're Catholics. But where they are on the uh, Catholic scale, whether, you know, what class they are, what social class they are, uh, whether they're, uh, they tend to be uh, working-class people, cops, uh, uh lawyers, uh, government officials, uh, or they tend to be uh, simple priests or priests are in the aristocracy of the church right on up to the Vatican itself. You know, it's, so they all, ha each, each one of them has a role to play. And, and the interesting thing is they're all, whether they realize it or not, and most don't realize it, they are all setting a mechanism in motion that, you know, eventually uh, resulted in one of the biggest scandals that uh, ever hit the United States you've in, talked, in the cap. You've talked about a main character, an altar boy who is murdered. Is that uh, personality or the background of that child, is that explored in your novel? Yeah, it is. I mean, you spend a lot of time with the family. Uh, you have to spend a lot of time with the family because uh, otherwise you won't understand how the culture kind of invades everything. Uh, you know, you see, the, uh, you see the family in their regular... Uh, you know, in their, their, you know, in their work, in their workspace, you see them in their uh, uh, daily routines. You see them in their religious life, and then what happens is events sort of just coalesce into around one particular event, which is this uh, this killing. You have described your your book and your novel as one that's character driven. Is there a an author, or is there a style of writing that you have? admired for quite some time that may have crept into your style of writing as well well I like a technique and I, it's more movie uh, more movie uh, based than it is writing based I like to call it cross cutting what yes. it is is I like to take a lot of characters and this is a story that calls for a lot of characters and what I do is to tell parts of their story uh, almost every chapter tells a part of a few characters stories and in the beginning, you really don't know where it's all going. You're seeing events that are happening in Massachusetts. You're seeing events that happen in Latin America. You see events that happen in Rome at the Vatican. 
and uh, all of it com- seems completely unrelated. But the one thing that ties it all together is really the whole relationship that the characters have to the church. And then as the book proceeds, what happens is the, the uh, characters begin to intersect, and a lot of the meaning begins to come out. And then pretty soon they're on a collision course. Hmm. And as the book develops, uh, the stories become much more related, and characters start to meet each other, interact with each other, and then a lot of interesting things happen, uh, which are very, very factual-based. Uh, you've mentioned 1970 as the general time frame that this story begins. How long does it progress, or how, what is the time frame that it, it, it covers? It begins in the early 60s and winds up in 1986. And in 1986, that is still before the first really big headlines started to occur. The real publicity about the uh, crisis in the American church came after the millennium, the millennium. But in the late 90s, there was a lot of issues that came out, too. Uh, but what happened was it would always seem to come out and then go underground again and then only to surface later and uh, so the reason I chose 1986 is because there were people within the church who tried to warn the hierarchy that they were going to have a big problem on their hands and basically their efforts came to naught they 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 were never able to uh, succeed in being able to uh, bring some solutions to the fore that they could get the hierarchy to agree with so that's kind of what I uh, the reason I kind of wrapped it up at about that time was because I thought that most people wouldn't know what happened in those decades before and yet it was a it was just it was an accident waiting to happen you could just see Mm. you just knew that sooner or later uh, it was going to all come out and it's interesting because it's come out not just in the United States it's come out in Latin America, and just last week, for instance, there were articles about uh, uh, Missouri. There was a in, uh, in the United States. There was an article about a Chilean bishop in uh, South America, and so uh, it's almost like uh, no matter what happens, you can pick up the paper, and you're still going to see an offshoot of the same crisis, uh, particularly as the church moves in. The areas that developed as Europe or uh, the United States. Is there an underlying message that you would hope to portray in your book, in your novel? Uh, I think that, you know, I, I, I would hate for it to be perceived as an anti-Catholic novel. I think the thing is, the, the thing that I like to always remember is the essential goodness of Catholic people. And the fact that uh, if you look at how uh, if, if people put their faith into practice and they follow the teachings of Jesus the way you're taught, you know, as a young Catholic, uh, they'll be just fine. The problem comes in when you have hierarchies and you have power. Hmm. And uh, basically, uh, you know, hierarchies are actually bureaucracies. And really the first rule of any bureaucracy is to uh, preserve itself. And so they'll do almost anything to preserve the institution. And that's where you get into trouble. That's where mistakes get made. Is there an is there an age an age range that this is appropriate for? Or is this something that might appeal to a, a total uh, wide range audience? I, I would think so because I think that right now the the, the 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 whole question of religion what will you what will you do for your religion? I mean, we see it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're certainly seeing it in 
uh, the Middle East. We're seeing it, you know, with the rise of groups like ISIS. What is a legitimate? What is a legitimate act that you could justify in terms of your religion? Uh, and so that's why I think that uh, what you know, what uh, you know, what I you know, what people will do to preserve what they think is something more important than the actual. Uh, teachings itself, you know, and right. so that's why I think it would appeal to a wider audience. I think that uh, the problems that uh, that uh, the church had in dealing with this crisis is the problems that any institution has. I mean, look at Penn State, you know, mm -hmm. the whole situation they had with uh, Coach Paterno. That's true. I mean, it's the same kind of thing, and uh, you know, institutions circle the wagons. Uh, you got the same thing going on in New Jersey over the bridge. You know the bridge, what they call Bridgegate, and it's it's just the same old story. You know, once you, you know, you try to keep things, you, you try to lose your transparency and keep things from coming out, you can justify almost anything, and and a lot of that went on. I mean, some of the tax tactics that were used by attorneys to keep people quiet, you know, would be you know, just blatant intimidation. You know, and a lot of the people that were intimidated were people that couldn't afford to. Uh, do anything except acquiesce. You know, yeah, we've ex we've experienced a little bit of that in the hospital situation recently in our family. So I uh, I, I understand what you're saying. This is you have a very full plate uh, from what you've described about your life and the activities you're involved in. This must have taken a long time to complete. Did you did you start with an outline? How did you begin the process, and how long did it take to complete? Well, what I did was I, I started by uh, I started going to newspapers. I started I, I saw I would see something that really interested me. I would see a case in 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 in, in this particular case. There was you know one was a uh, you know a murder that did occur. It, it occurred later, and then I, I also learned about a fatal accident that had occurred about the same time. And I looked. I started doing the clippings and. Uh, I just started doing a, little, a lot of research about it. One of the things that really got me going is in 1995, I did a volunteer trip to, uh, to Ecuador, and I went with a burn team from a hospital in, uh, in uh, Toronto. So our job, a friend of mine and I, our job was to uh, document what they were doing with these kids. And so we were working in a public hospital in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And the women, the nurses, everybody who worked in there, the, you know, they, the, 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 the locals, they were all Catholics. And I'd also been doing some volunteer work in, on the streets of Lawrence with a soup kitchen. I did that for about 13 years. Most of the people who worked there were Catholic. And I was really, you know, I was really moved by the example of a lot of people who put the faith into practice as opposed to, say, making sure they went to church every Sunday and following all the rules, etc., oh, yes. etc. And, you know, some of them were divorced, some of them, you know, had all kinds of issues, uh, but the essential goodness of what they did made a real impression on me. So, you know, I, I was doing a lot of research, and then it just started to come together, and uh, I worked on it for about a decade. Well, I love the tagline that you put in here. It's a real hook, and, I, and as a movie producer and, and special producer using video content, I understand why you put that on the cover. In May 1970, an altar boy was murdered in Massachusetts. The crime will never be solved. The, the title of the book, the main title, is Ordinary Evil. Our author, Gene Ferraro, has joined me from Massachusetts. Sir, where do we get copies of your book? 
Uh, you can get the book uh, from uh, Amazon.com. Just look up Ordinary Evil. It'll be there. BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's in some independent bookstores. And then you can order it from uh, iUniverse. Uh, so it's uh, pretty easy to get. Uh, it's uh, you, know, you can get it as a download. You can get it as a hardbound or a paperback. Any follow-up uh, and, books uh, in the process, in the works right now? Doing notes on a couple of different ideas. One is about... Uh, one is about how, uh, you know, uh, I had an interesting experience where my dad, who was a decorated World War II veteran, happened to have the same name as a major deadbeat who collection agencies were going mm. after. Uh-huh. So he was, you know, while he was alive, he's been gone quite a while now, but while he, and it was really interesting, it got into the whole way that debt is collected and how everybody's in, you know, the, the, the uh, probate, not the probate, but the... Uh, the local courts, the bailiffs, the uh, the sheriffs, and all of these other people are in cahoots with the debt with the debt collection agencies. So I thought that might be an interesting piece for a thriller. I the think it would. I, I would like to do a piece about in uh, in the whole idea of how it was very very much a part of American culture in the uh, 30s and the 40s. That it was not something that the uh, Germans, the Nazis, were the only ones involved in. That a lot of things happen, and again, you know, an awful lot of things got done in the name of science, in the name of accomplishing good that basically were pretty evil. Gene, you have an unusual title, Ordinary Evil. Why that title, and what's the significance? Well, originally we were going to call the book Ordinary, and Ordinary uh, ordinary has a really a double meaning. Uh, when we think about in church parlance, an ordinary is either a bishop, a cardinal, or the pope himself. An ordinary is a is a term that relates to their power. It means that they have complete jurisdiction within their sphere. Hmm. They are all powerful within their sphere. And this is the reason, one of the reasons why bishops had so much problems, and a lot of the problems really in the uh, sexual abuse crisis all relate back to the bishops and how they use their power. But at the same time, it means power in the church parlance. Uh, it, you know, it's also about ordinary people, people like you, people like me, uh, ordinary Catholics. So I thought that it was, a very, it was an interesting way of looking at it, and the evil kind of stems from the power. It's not like it's a horror story, although in a way it is, I suppose it is a horror story. But uh, it's, uh, it, seemed like a good, it seemed like a good title to be able to bring people in that really had some sense of meaning to the plot itself. Fascinating topic, and and with your background in movie uh, movie history, you may have uh, a desire to see this ordinary evil put into film content as well. Best of luck with that, and hope to hear from right, you in the future. You. Well, thank you very, very much. Honored to visit with you. My guest again has been Gene Ferraro, who's joined me from near Boston, Massachusetts, in the United States. Thank you, Gene, for joining me today. Best of luck. I appreciate it. Thank you very My much. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.